Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Greetings in the name of Jesus. I am so grateful to be here with you today. Thanks to all of you that are tuning in to listen to this uh, sermon online. As we continue our series in the book of Ephesians, the series titled In Him. The title of today's message is Chosen for Worship, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Today, we're going to continue to look at the themes of predestination and worship that are found in Ephesians 1 and how they mix together. But before I share, I have some thoughts that I hope will set the tone. Because I think sometimes when we're talking about these things, we feel like we have to pick a side. Well, I have to pick either God's sovereignty and that God is in control and that, you know, God ordains and predestines, or no, I have to pick the human responsibility, free will side. And we sort of, you know, create these two... uh, these two sides that kind of come against each other. But we don't have to pit the ideas of God's sovereignty and human responsibility against each other because the Bible doesn't do that. As we look at scripture, we see that both concepts are actually true at the same time. So in teaching on predestination today, it really doesn't negate the reality that God has given us freedom to make real choices that have real consequences. This idea is called concurrence. It's the biblical paradox that says that two ideas that on the surface seem contradictory are actually true simultaneously and are beautifully woven together by God. Okay, thought number two, and it's related to number one. As we discuss these things, we need to understand what I call God's math. It's just plain different than our math. Remember, God is different than us. For example, God's math, the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, what does that teach? What's the math in the Trinity? One plus one plus one equals one, right? That's that's God's math. It doesn't compute to the human mind, and yet it is absolutely true because the Bible teaches it that way. How about the doctrine uh, or the theology of the incarnation? You know, that, that... God became a man in Christ, that Jesus had a dual nature. What is that? Well, so we go, okay, well, what percentage of Jesus was man and what percentage of Jesus was God? Maybe, maybe he was like 75, 80% God and you know, 20, 25% man. No, God's math. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He was the only 200% man that ever lived. God's math. Now, when we're discussing the topics of God's sovereignty, predestination and election, and human responsibility and, and, and free will or, or human will, it's the same idea. It, it's categorized in God's math because what the scriptures teach is that God is 100% sovereign and man is 100% responsible at the same time. So what do we do when we come to these paradoxes? That we can't wrap our, you know, we who have grown up in this Greco-Roman culture where we solve things with debates and and logos and, you know, in laboratories. What do we do? You know what we do? We bow. We say, God, I don't fully understand it, but I bow because your word says these things are true. 
You know, Josh and I were uh, talking this week about this text and, and the idea of predestination and, and yet, you know, human responsibility. And uh, we were reminded of that, that picture uh, that you might use where the door to the kingdom has written over it, whosoever will come. And that's how we come. We hear the gospel and we, we come to the door and we say, I believe, I repent, I put my faith in Jesus. And we walk through the door, right? And then we look on the other side of the door and when you get in, and you look on the other side, the door says, chosen. And see, that, that's our experience as we walk with God. That was the disciples' experience. He said, come and follow me. They said, I will drop my nets and boat and I'll follow you. And then Jesus said later on, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to bear fruit abundantly. Okay, so one, one more thought that I think could be helpful. These things are in scripture because they are beautiful The reason Paul and the other apostles taught it was to comfort us and deepen our worship. These teachings are not in scripture to cause division and hostile debates and factions and different camps. And they're intended to anchor our souls that God is truly in control. And that's a sure defense. And it puts beauty. He's writing beauty with his sovereignty into our stories. Okay, now with that, let's look at the text today. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the, Holy, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's just quickly pray. Father, I pray that what we need to know, teach us. What we need to see, show us. Where we need to go, lead us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the main themes in this text, on repeat, is worship. And worship is not just, I don't I just want you to think about like Sunday morning music. You know, worship is, you know, the, it's the exaltation of God, the magnification of God in the whole life of a Christian. It's everything we are and everything we do. You can't get away from this theme in Ephesians chapter one. Thus the title of this message, chosen for worship. Okay, a couple verses from last week's text. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Today's text, verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Getting the idea there? over and over again. The gospel is about the glory of God. Why does he get all the glory? Because when we see how God saves us and the condition we were in when he did, we get no glory. We get none glory. There is no boasting in the gospel. There's no boasting in grace. Our boast is in Christ. Uh, Think about it. Rescued people aren't arrogant people, right? So when you have a revelation, when you have an understanding that I've been rescued, 
you're not boastful or arrogant. You're grateful and thankful. I mean, think about the, you know, like the I shouldn't be alive, you know, show. Uh, some guy like floating out at sea for, you know, 92 days, like eating kelp and jellyfish, you know. Somehow he survives. And by a miracle, this ship comes by and he, they pull him up on the ship and he gets up on the ship. Does he go, man, did you see me? I lasted 92 days out there. I'm the man. Now, he doesn't talk like that. He's on his knees, he's weeping, and he's saying, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. Rescued people are not arrogant people. So let's just take a moment, before we look at this, this idea of you know, predestination and you know, God ordaining our salvation, let's look at our need for rescue. Let's review the doctrine of sin before we unpack this text, because I think it'll be helpful for us to see grace more clearly. Okay, just quickly. The doctrine of sin. What, what does the Bible have to say about sin? Ephesians 2, 1 says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead. Our spiritual senses are, are sick. They're corrupted. We're spiritually deaf and spiritually blind without Christ and intervening grace. Number two, we can't not sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our instinct, our bent, our nature is to sin. In Genesis 6, 5, of course, it was talking about the state of the world at the time, but it shows you the extent of sin in the human heart when it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intentions, intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The reformers, that's believers God used in what church history calls the Reformation. They use the phrase total depravity to describe our condition. Now, that doesn't mean that we're as sinful as we can be, but simply that every part of us post-fall is corrupted by sin and given over ultimately to death apart from Christ. So there's a difference between saying utter depravity and total depravity. We are not utterly depraved as we are made in the image of God and we can see his goodness and common grace everywhere. The doctrine of sin says that our nature has been irreparably marred by sin and without grace, we're doomed. Okay, doctrine of sin, thought number three. Because we're slaves to sin, because we can't not sin, we can't want God. We can't want God. Our sin nature doesn't want and can't want God and his rule and his authority. It's kind of like this. If I gave you two choices, your favorite food or cricket and dog hair soup. What would you choose? <laughs> I'm guessing your favorite food, not cricket and dog hair soup, right? You wouldn't want the cricket and dog hair soup in a hundred days or even in a thousand days. Every day you'd pick your favorite food. And that's what we're like without grace bringing the resurrection power of Jesus into our hearts. We have no taste for God. We have no appetite for him. Spiritually dead people can't want God. Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks the Lord. Okay, thought number four about sin. Because of sin, we are under condemnation for that sin. Jesus spoke very plainly about this. He said in John 3 that whoever believes in him would not be condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already. This tells us something about our state before we believe in Jesus. The whole world lies in a state of condemnation. And therefore, Jesus said, whoever has a son has life, and whoever does not have the son does not have life. One more thought about sin. God has no obligation to save us. 
Have you, have you realized that? We don't deserve, to say we don't deserve salvation means he was not obligated to do it. And actually, if you look at scripture and what it teaches, he didn't save fallen angels and he often didn't save ancient Gentile nations, but swept them away in judgment. He judged the world, the world in the days of Noah. So when God does save, it glorifies his love and grace, doesn't it? Because he's not obligated to give it. That's what makes it grace. When he doesn't save, it glorifies his justice and righteousness. Okay, if that is true about us, and that is what the scriptures teach about sin, what do you and I need because of this sinful state we're in? <clears throat> we need a couple things. We need rescue. Number two, we need a hero that's willing to come after us and save us. Number three, we need grace. We need a, a hero that's willing to do it even though we're undeserving of it. And number four, we need resurrection power, which means we need a hero that actually has the power to solve our problem, which is spiritual death, which means this hero has to have resurrection power. That's what Paul's saying we have in Christ in this text today. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The very first words we hear in this text again, are in him, the theme of this book and series. Remember, that's the idea that we're saved based on our position in Christ, not by our performance for Christ. So the questions we're gonna spend the rest of our time answering quickly from this text, what does God do? What does this text tell us God does? Number two, for whom does he do it? Number three, how does he do it? And number four, why does he do it? Why would God do this? Okay, number one, what does he do? This text tells us that God plans and he predestines. Verse 11 again, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This verse tells us that because of our spiritual condition, God plans and predestines. Because God knew we were helpless, this says that he plans out our salvation beforehand. I'll say it this way. He puts together a rescue party the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to come after us and rescue us. And notice, he doesn't confer with you. He doesn't ask you about it. It's the purpose of him, not my purpose. He takes counsel with himself. Look at what it says. Who works all things after the counsel of his own will. In other words, who did God counsel when he decided to save you? Himself. Predestination is the teaching that Jesus was the first one ever to love me and that God has eternally chosen those whom he intends to save through Christ the Son and that he won't fail in his attempt to do it. We began hearing about this last week, if you were here, um, earlier in this chapter. Here, here's a verse from last week. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This theology, this truth teaches that Jesus didn't just die for the potential of saving his church. He actually secured the salvation of his people through the cross. It was effectual. He, when he said it is finished, that means he actually accomplished defeating sin, death, hell, and our rebellion at the cross. 
He purchased our souls. Listen to Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Last week I said, sometimes we have a problem with the idea of predestination. I know I, I did for years because I had this fortress in my heart around this concept of free will. So listen, let me, let me say it this way. There's a good definition of free will and there is a bad definition of free will. There's a biblical definition and there's an unbiblical definition. The bad definition says that God's power ends at the border of my will. But there's actually no way to conclude that from scripture. If you read scripture and the whole tone of scripture about this topic, there's no way you could conclude that. Proverbs 21.1, for example, says, the heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And what's true for kings is true for beggars. God has the power to move our will. So the bad definition, the bad definition of free will is autonomy, that I'm on my own. The scriptures don't teach that. The good definition of, of free will, the good definition of how, we, how our will interacts with God is that we have freedom that operates under the sovereign umbrella of God's will. So predestination doesn't destroy human choices. It simply tells us where the power to make any godly choice comes from. Remember, we're spiritually dead without Christ. Jonathan Edwards taught it this way. He taught that we have natural ability and, and moral ability. There, there's two kinds of ability that, that we, we have as being made in the image of God. So when God originally made us, when he made the human race, he gave us natural ability and moral ability. Adam and Eve had both. Natural ability is the ability to make a choice. See, we don't just have instinct like animals do. We have choices. Moral ability is the ability to make the right choice. In the fall, we did not lose our natural ability. We can still make real choices. What we lost, what, what the nature of sin in the fall teaches, is that we lost our ability to make the right choice. We lost our moral ability. But God, by grace, restores our moral ability to choose him. We begin to want God. We begin to desire God. So yes, it is our will that is choosing God, but our wills are enslaved by sin unless God heals them. The nature of sin, the doctrine of sin says that we would reject God a hundred out of a hundred times without healing grace. So through predestination, God sets his love on you and his grace on you. And with that, he overcomes your resistance. He overcomes your rebellion. And he gives you the power to choose God of your own volition, of your own will. And somebody says, well, can't we resist God? Doesn't the Bible teach we can resist God? And the answer is yes, until God resists your resistance. Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So what does God do? He predestines and he saves us. Now, the next question, for whom does he do it? Back to the text, verse 11 and verse 14. In him we, we, you, me, we, have obtained an inheritance. 
we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He does it for us, this, this we that's in this text. Who is the we? Who is the us? It's us, undeserving sinners who would rather lead our own lives, be our own lords, and be in a universe without God than make him king. He does it for us. Notice there was no condition we had to meet for him to, to save us. It's all to the praise of his glory, not ours. But what do we become when he saves us? How do the scriptures here that I just read refer to us? Did you notice the word inheritance? It's used twice. Can we think about that word for a second? Who gets an inheritance? The servants or the sons and daughters? You know the answer. It's the children. Inheritance is for the children. We have this amazing inheritance in Christ. He makes us, these undeserving sinners that he shows incredible grace to and he reaches for us and he puts his rescue plan in motion and he makes us sons and daughters. He saves us. And we've, we've received it. We've received the promise of salvation. And yet there's a sense where we haven't fully received it yet. And that's why the text says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the full possession of it. Speaking of the great day our future glory. So this means that we haven't fully obtained our salvation yet. We're on our way, in a sense, to the promised land. We're still pilgrims in this world, but we haven't arrived yet. But to assure us that we will be finally saved, Paul says God gave us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. It's a, it's a financial term. It's a down payment. He gave us a down payment for the inheritance to come, the Holy Spirit. He uses this language again in Galatians, he tells us he gives us the Holy Spirit, but there in Galatians, he tells us what the Holy Spirit is doing in us while we wait. Galatians 4, 6, and 7, one of my favorite verses. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Holy Spirit is in our hearts to witness with our spirits that we're the children of God. Let me, let me, I'll say it this way. The Holy Spirit helps you to feel saved. Maybe you know that, you know, you're, you've been taught well and you know you're saved by grace through faith. You believe the, what the Bible says about how we're saved and yet your heart's like, huh? I, I don't feel it there. The Holy Spirit's work is to come into our hearts and help us to feel saved. You know that you can know a truth in your mind but not in your heart. You know that. Let me use the illustration of my son, right? my son, Jack. My, I, my son, Jack, knows I love him. He knows that. But when I put my arm around him, when we're, you know, we're on a, a daddy date together, and I put my arm around him, you know, we're in a theater about to watch you know, an Avengers movie or something, and I say, Jack, I just love you so much. I'm just so glad we get to spend time together. I love you, son. That's a whole different experience, isn't it? That's a whole different kind of knowing. He knew previously that I loved him. Now he really knows that I love him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. That, that's his work. That's, that's the down payment. That's, that's the guarantee of our inheritance to come. So what does God do? He plans our salvation. For whom does he do it? He does it for sinners and he makes us sons and daughters. And he's constantly reminding our hearts of that. How does he do it? Verse 13, 
in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, the danger in talking about God's sovereignty and, and predestination is fatalism or determinism, you know? Well, what's the point of preaching? And if God plans and ordains, what's the point of preaching? And yet it says here in this text that they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. So this tells us how God does it. It tells us how God works. Yes, he predestines and elects, but he doesn't do it in a way where he bypasses the human race. The preaching of the gospel is the means through which he does it. I want you to think of it like music. God has a plan for our lives, a plan of salvation for our lives and for his church. And he has a plan that he's working out in the world for his glory. Like a great composer has a musical piece. God has this great plan that he's written and it's playing out in front of our eyes every day. Now, what musician would not want to play the, the musical score of a great composer? What would you think? Do you think it would be odd for a professional musician to look at a great score that was pre-written and say, eh, I don't wanna play that. It's already written. I'd like to play my own music, just make it up. No, professional musicians, you know, they look at Mozart or Vivaldi or Bach and they're like, I wanna play that because it's beautiful. Well, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that God's people and our obedience and the preaching of the gospel is the means through which God works out his plan in the world. He doesn't separate his plan from our obedience and from the preaching of the gospel. So pick up your instrument and play. We get to be part of our father's business. What a joy that we have. It's the joy of the musician to play the piece and it's the joy of the Christian to preach the gospel, to do God's will, to obey him and trust that he's working through all my efforts in ministry. So we need to obey God and work in the harvest fields of the world, the harvest fields of Clarksville. <clears throat> but never forget, the whole time while we're working, that it is God who is at work in you to will and to do of his pleasure. So what does God do? He plans our salvation. For whom does he do it? For sinners, and he makes us sons and daughters. How does he do it? Through the preaching of the gospel. And finally, why does he do it? Well, I've already given away that point. We're just going back now to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The reason the gospel includes teaching on God's sovereignty and predestination is comfort and worship. It's for the praise of his glory. It's for comfort. God is in control. Isn't it wonderful to know that? Especially when you suffer. No, you're not at the mercy of, of man or devil. You're in God's hands. Doesn't, doesn't that comfort you? So, so these ideas comfort us to know that God has a plan and he's working out that plan. We summarize it this way. God causes good and in his sovereign wisdom sometimes for reasons we don't understand, he allows evil, but he ordains all things and that comforts us. He works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So a Christian doesn't need to be afraid, like we're at the mercy of chance or some plans of the devil. You know, years back in 2002, uh, my wife had a miscarriage. It was our first of three miscarriages. And we had a well-meaning sister in Christ come up to us in church 
after it happened. And she, she, was, a, she was an intercessor. <laughs> and she said, oh, I, just, I just wish that, uh, that, that God would have told me that the devil is going to come and take your baby because uh, then maybe I could have prayed and stopped it. And my wife and I, we, we were in this sort of theological uh, journey at the time, trying to figure out some of these things I'm now talking about confidently. And I remember we looked at each other like, hold up. What did she just say? Who, who's actually sovereign? Who's in charge? Who's actually in control? Because if we believe what this well-meaning sister in Christ said, then we have to conclude that the devil is sovereign. That whenever he wants, he could just come in and rip the baby out of my wife's womb. Or, or maybe we're sovereign. It's about how great our faith is or isn't. Or there's another option. God's sovereign. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. When we landed there, and as we began to dig into scripture, we began to see that that is what the scriptures teach, and that's a great comfort to us, and I hope it is to you today. And the second reason these things are in scripture, circling back to the title of this message and the whole point of this message, and I believe the great theme of the text, it's for worship. See, we see it's all grace. When this is all over, brothers and sisters, we're all gonna take our crowns and our trophies and throw them down at the feet of Jesus and worship him saying, you are worthy to receive all glory, glory to the lamb who sits on the throne. So what do we conclude? That God chose us for worship. And remember, worship isn't just singing songs, it's the whole life of a Christian. So let's worship Jesus. And there's no greater place to see God's sovereign hand at work than in the the story and the power of the cross. There's nothing that comforts us more or inspires us deeper to worship than the cross. Listen to Acts chapter four, verse 27, 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus was plan A for you and for me. Let's adore him and let's worship him with all our lives, with, with our words and our deeds and our thoughts and our actions. Let's seek to glorify God with our lives and be on his mission to preach the gospel to the world in our generation. Some thoughts in closing, some application. Number one, let's just be grateful. Let's just be thankful as we consider these things. Thankful for these spiritual blessings in Christ that are, that are recited to us and rehearsed for us in Ephesians chapter one. Number two, ask God how you can be a means of grace. In what ways can you obey him and bring his gospel to the world around you and serve others? How can you pick up your instrument and play? What, what music does he want you to play for him to bring beauty and an adornment to his name in this world. Number three, ask God how you can worship him and give him glory. How can you worship him with your life? And let me ask you this way, in, some way, in what ways right now is your life maybe not bringing him honor and glory? Are you convicted today? Are there some things in your life that are not bringing glory to God, that, that are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that you haven't, you haven't, your chips on his square and said, Jesus, it's yours. Be glorified in this area of my life, my work, my family, my relationships, my entertainment choices, my, the thoughts of my heart. 
my gifts, my talents, my dreams, my past, my present, my future. Put all your chips in his square. Say, Jesus, it's yours. Be glorified in my successes. Be glorified in my failures. It's all yours. It's for your glory. I trust you. Ask him in what ways you can worship him and give him glory. Let's be worshipers of Jesus. That's why we were chosen. That's why we were designed. That's why we were put here in this world. That's why God has sovereignly ordained that you would be part of Redeeming Hope today. Listening to this message, gathered together around his word so that we could bring glory to his name here in Clarksville. I hope that encourages you today like it encourages me. We exist to the praise of his glorious grace. God bless you and thanks for watching today. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.